0: Thank you for being here today. If you're new, my name is Chuck. I'm one of the pastors, and I have the privilege of bringing the message to you this morning. If you would, turn with me in your Bible to John chapter 13. If you do not have a Bible, there is one in one of the seats around you in front. And if you don't have a copy of the Scriptures at home, please feel free to take that with you. It's our gift to you. Last week we started a new a sermon series where we're going to be walking through John 13 to 17, and we're going to be in the first section of John 13 this morning. I think that John 13 through 17 is some of the most fascinating, humbling, earth-rattling literature ever written. The night before Jesus was arrested, falsely tried, beaten, mocked, and ultimately killed on the cross is what this section of the Bible is about. When Jesus knew that his death was near, he spent his final hours preparing his followers for what was to come. And we're going to spend the next four months together covering less than a 24-hour period of time. And honestly, I'm concerned even that is going a little bit too fast. The riches in these truths are incredible. And I want to encourage you to take time outside of Sunday morning over the next several months to mine these treasures. Ask another brother or sister in Christ to study these words with you. Meet over a meal or or coffee to challenge each other with what the scriptures say. Dads and moms in the room, raise your children with these words. If you're somebody in the room who's been walking with Jesus for a while, take the initiative to approach another brother or sister in the room and ask them to meet with you and read these scriptures together. And I hope that you'll pray for us as a church family, that God would give us an understanding of what's here. There's so much in these few chapters. Last week, we summarized the message of John 13 to 17 by looking at Colossians 3. In essence, what we tried to do is say, for a period of months, we're going to cover these truths in depth. But just as an overview, here's the main thing that that passage says. We said that the Christian life is not primarily a set of ethics, morals, or theological principles. It's not mainly an activity or a behavior. Christianity is not chiefly even that we love Jesus or that we obey Jesus. It's not that we admire or worship Jesus. It's not that we love other Christians and try to emulate Jesus. All of those things are true and they're important and we believe them without hesitation no reservation whatsoever. But they're not the very essence of what Christianity is. At the very heart of Christianity is the gospel. It's the good news that God, through Christ, treats his people like he treats Jesus. But that's what Christianity is. That we're regarded by God the Father with all the love and affection and acceptance with which he regards the Son. That's Christianity. And so today we want to begin putting flesh on that and seeing how that principle works itself out. And we'll do that by looking at what is one of the more odd things that comes up in John 13 to 17. So, John 13, before we read it, if I could introduce it in this way Imagine it's your birthday. Anybody in the room having a birthday today, on this very day? Cody? Cody is? Is he in the kitchen? Get him for me. Go grab him. Cody! <laughs> Cody is a, the fabulous cook who cooks each week for college lunch. Cody, happy birthday! Come on up here. No, no speech. How you doing? How many is this? 35. 35. Well, happy birthday. So Cody, imagine (laughs) that you're at dinner tonight, all right? You've had a big meal with family. You've had cake. You're stuffed. You feel like you could explode. Can you imagine that? Okay. (laughs) Now what comes after this, of course? Gifts. Gifts, gifts, okay? There's a big table full of gifts. And one of these gifts is quite large. You unwrap the gift and you sheepishly say, thank you, even though you have no idea what it is, all right? The truth is you have no clue what this thing is. It's some kind of machinery. It has buttons and levers and screens, and you don't know what it's for, let alone how to use it. But you certainly don't say any of that, right? What do you do? Smile and nod. (laughs) Oddly enough, that's exactly what I have written here. Cody nods, says thank you, and then goes along to what he was doing already. See you later, brother. Happy birthday. (laughs) Now, he's gone, everybody else is gone, so he sneaks back in. And he looks at the gift again. After staring at a long time, buttons, levers, screens, no clue what to do. What should he do? Get the directions or Google it. Yes. All right. You find out how to use something you've been given that you don't know what to do with through the owner's manual, through checking out Google. Google. They're asking the manufacturer, what is this object and how do I use it? Why do you go to the manufacturer? Because they made it. They're going to be able to tell you how to use it. Friend, what is your life for? Why are you here? Well, the Bible is our owner's manual. It tells us from the manufacturer how we're supposed to live life. It tells us what life is for. And today, in a very strange way, Jesus is going to tell us. He's going to say, here's why you're here. Here's the manufacturer telling you what to do with your life. We're going to find today that Jesus says life is about serving. If we're honest, that sounds pretty churchy and trite, doesn't it? Before we scold it and scoff it and set it away, let's try to hear him out. Jesus is our manufacturer. He created us. He wrote the owner's manual. He knows how life is supposed to work. And what he says, and we'll see today, is that life is ultimately about serving, about living a life of service. That that's what humanity is for. We'll see today that Jesus is unself absorbed we'll see that there's joy in service and that he created us anew in christ to serve so john 13 let's read together 1 through 17 i'll read it to you now before the feast of the passover when jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the father having loved his own who were in the world he loved them to the end During supper when the devil had already put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, laid aside his outer garment, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I'm doing now you do not understand, but afterwards you will understand. Peter said to him, you will never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Peter said to him, then Lord, wash not only my feet, but but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. You are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew that one was about to betray him, and that's why he said, Not all of you are clean. Verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garment and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I've done to you? There are some really strange commands in the Bible, but this one certainly is towards the top of the list. Wash one another's feet. God, I can deal with that whole waiting for sex until marriage, and I will tell people about the gospel. I'll pray, and I'll even give some money to church. But wash feet? Nope. I'm out. That one's too weird for me. It sounds crazy, it sounds nuts. Doesn't it? The command is there. It's clear. Verse 14. If I, the Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Let's take a few minutes to try to explain what that could mean. And then let's try to apply it together. This meal was the last one Jesus would share with his disciples before he was arrested and killed. There's lots of overtones, lots of significance to this meal that we don't have time to go into today. We've talked about it in the past. John does not include this detail, but Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all cover the same period of time. And they write about variant things that happened in order to give us different pictures telling the same story. And if we turn over to Luke, which... You don't need to read. I'll just tell you what happens. Luke includes a detail here that John doesn't. Luke tells us in Luke 22 that in this same moment, in the same period of time, the 12 disciples were arguing amongst themselves about which one was the greatest. So Jesus is telling them, I'm going to die. And the disciples are saying, yeah, but which one of us is going to be the most important one next to Jesus in the kingdom? Can you imagine a moment like that? Yes, you can. We are people pretty fed up and concerned with being the people in charge and having the power in the room. Jesus is saying you get power by giving it up. You find greatness by being unconcerned with self and giving your life away. But his disciples are arguing instead about who's going to sit on his right and on his left, they still don't get it. You see at this point they 're expecting Jesus to launch a campaign against Rome, and they're imagining an earthly kingdom they're expecting Jesus to do away with all other troubles and to restore power and glory and dignity to Israel. But Jesus is saying, "This is my body it 's going to be broken for you." but they're thinking of themselves they 're saying no. I'm going to get the vice president position and I'm going to be the chief of staff. They're arguing over the right and the left. And in the middle of all of that mess, Jesus gets up from the table, ties a towel around his waist, gets two basins of water and starts washing their feet. And if you think it's weird to us, it would have been much, much, much stranger to them. Not because of the custom, but because of who in the room was doing it. You see, no master would have ever washed his disciples' feet. Everybody in this day wore sandals, and they walked on filthy streets. And the people and the animals used the same walkways. So imagine dust and dirt and grime and poop all ground up together. And as you walked from place to place to place, that's what you collected. And so the custom was when you got to someone's home to have a meal, then they would have a servant and that servant would take a basin and a pitcher would pour water over your feet and then wipe them with a towel and all of that yuckiness would be washed away. Foot washing in this day was the most demeaning of tasks Only a Gentile slave was allowed to Jews it, to Jews it, to Jews it. (laughs) Only Gentile slaves were allowed to do it. Jews were not allowed to require their Jewish slaves to do it. So in other words, it was the most demeaning task imaginable. Have you ever heard of that show, um, Filthiest Jobs or Dirtiest Jobs? This was the dirtiest of all jobs. It was inconceivable that a leader would humble himself by washing his disciples' feet. In fact, one commentary I read this week said that outside of the Bible, there is literally no ancient source, Jewish or Greco-Roman, of any superior washing their disciples' feet, except for Jesus. He's the only one. Here's the point. The people of Christ are to do the work of Christ. That is the simple message this passage gives us. It's not weird and it's not strange. It's not complicated. The people who bear the name of Christ are supposed to carry on the work of Christ. You see, in the kingdom of God, greatness is not found by being domineering. It's not found through power. It's not being the most beautiful and wealthy. It's not by attaining the corner office where people report to you. It's not found in being published. It's not found in being well-known. It's not found in being smart or being the center of attention. The kingdom of God is an upside-down kingdom. Every way the world tells us you gain power in the kingdom of God is untrue. Greatness is not found in being served but in serving. Jesus gave us an example. Serve one another without regard for how this makes you look. The people of Christ are to do the work of Christ. One of the particularly encouraging things happening at Church on Mill right now is that we have a, a volcano of servanthood. There are people everywhere doing things for other people. Thank you for serving. This is a wonderful season of our life together as a church. Service is most pure when it's done towards people who are not like us. You see, even in our service, there's a temptation to be doing it, not for them, but for us, right? Have you ever seen that tendency in yourself? I'm going to do this for this person because it will make me look a particular way. It'll be thought of in a particular way the person I'm serving will reciprocate it for me. But when we serve people who are different than us, that temptation is largely stripped away because that's really not serving people. It's manipulating and using them. When we serve people who are different than us, do things simply for their benefit, then the motive becomes much more pure. That's one of the very practical reasons why we as a church have tried to organize around things that mix us up with different people. Connection classes, for example, change every seven weeks. They're designed specifically to get people in the room gathered around a topic, not around a life stage. And gospel communities are intentionally designed to pull people together by geography and by a shared mission, not by everybody in the room has young kids or everybody in the room is in college or everybody in the room is a senior adult. Frankly, this is a much harder way to do church. I've never been in a church personally before that organized like that. It's easier to gather in traditional Sunday school classes. But the way we're doing this gives us consistent opportunities for cross-generational boundary-busting service. It's not easy but it's exposing the ways in which it's easy to like people like us and asking us to go out of our way to live like Christ, to like people different than us. Why? Well, because we want to make your life hard. That is the main motivation from your church leaders. No, really, it's because the people of Christ are to do the work of Christ. Christ served people different than Him, and we are to do the same. It's the way the manufacturer says life works. Now what does it look like, though, on a real practical level, to take initiative and serve your church family selflessly? In other words, what does foot washing look like in 2015 or foot <laughs> It's not, obviously, washing feet. In our culture today, to wash someone's feet would be seen as um, weird, crossing inappropriate boundaries, and downright insane. So what does it look like to bless people in the way that Christ blessed people? Well, it would look like your your life being about doing whatever would bless somebody else irrespective of how it would make you look. It would be a disregard for self and a complete regard for somebody else. Now the list of ways through which that could be done is endless, right? Like it would be impossible to come up with a list that you could say, okay, I'm going to do one of these a week for the rest of the year and then I will have served the way Christ served. It simply can't be done that way. It's It's much more of a posture of the heart that I'm going to be more concerned about you and your walk with Christ than I am about myself. But maybe some examples would help us to think practically about how we could live this way. So I've come up with three simply to spur us on. And three would remind us of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, of course. So three ways through which we can serve. The first, and they'll be on the screens maybe a first way we could think about this is to prioritize people's needs above our own. Would you think with me about a typical ending of the day for you? When you've finished your schoolwork or you get home from a long day at work, what do you most want to do? Not rhetorical. What do you most want to do? There is no lack of response to that question. You... you, you want to tend to yourself, right? You want to have a good meal. You want to sit in front of Netflix. You want to take a hot shower and you just want to sit and be. That's it. What if instead, at the end of your day tomorrow, instead of asking what do I most need for myself, you asked, who in my church family could I serve tonight? What if the the way your mind drifted was towards the needs of others instead of towards the needs of yourself. Now, rest is important, and rest is a godly thing. But we are people infatuated not with genuine rest, but with thoughtless, escapist recreationalism. We're people that think, I deserve to sit and end my day all about me. And that's actually a, a fundamental trait of our time in life, our station in life, our generation, that maybe we need to challenge. Maybe that isn't true. Yes, we should rest, but not fall away into the cultural trap of escapism. Life won't be found by me ending every day about me, but life can be found by joyfully serving other people. So real practically, I want to challenge you to tomorrow. If you're a part of this church family, would you write down somewhere to remind yourself tomorrow night, I'm going to ask, what could I do to serve someone in my church family? Maybe it's write an encouraging text. It'll take 30 seconds. Maybe it's make a phone call. Maybe it's scheduling an appointment later in the week. Maybe it's writing it. There's these things called cards. You can open them and write with a pen and put a stamp on it? Wouldn't it be neat to get something in the mail mail other than a bill? You could literally take a few minutes to write somebody an encouraging note. What could you do to serve someone in your church family? Here's a second suggestion. Practice hidden kindness. If you're a person particularly unprone to serve somebody else, then I would suggest the first way you go about trying to build service in your life is to do things for other people anonymously. This will mean, especially if you don't tell someone else that you're doing it, that you're serving for the sake of, of Christ, the cause of Christ, not for the accolades of others. There are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of ways that you could do things to bless somebody else without them ever knowing it's you. Now, I'm not talking about guys, the weird, I love you and you stick it on the car of the the girl you like and the creepy (laughs) stalker stuff. That's not what I'm talking about. Simply doing something for somebody else that would serve them, aid them, encourage them, bless them that they might not ever know. There are plenty of weeds in the rocks. If you'd like to come do that at my house, you're welcome. <laughs> All right, number three forgive as you've been forgiven. This one will take maybe a few more minutes to explain. In our particular context, serving each other by forgiving offenses, so little things that are no big deal, simply saying that happened. It shouldn't have happened and I choose to ignore it and move on. Are there things that perhaps you're hanging on to that somebody did to you that were not right but they don't rise to the level of needing to go and talk to them about? Are there things like that that have happened that you simply need to forgive and move on? My guess is yes. Yes. A way you can be Christ-like is to simply forgive and then to go on with life. Another way you can forgive is by when things rise to that level of needing to have a conversation, that instead of harboring bitterness and resentment and unforgiveness, that you take the loving step, the forgiving step, the Christ-like step of going to that brother or sister in Christ and talking to them about it, working through it. Not, as we talked about last week, running or gossiping. That's foot washing. I think that perhaps may be the best cultural equivalent today. Because in a world that teaches us, you are in charge. Your life is about you. Whatever you want to do is the right thing to do. No one has the right to ever say to you, that was wrong. Then perhaps the most foot-washing, Christ-like, slave-like thing we could do is go to somebody and say three words. I was wrong. Let's practice that together. I was wrong. And don't elbow the person next to you and say, I never dreamed I would hear you say that. Okay? What would happen... If when you were aware that you wronged someone in a significant way, you didn't wait for them to come and talk to you about it. You did what Matthew tells you to do. You left your gift at the altar. You went to that brother or sister and you said, I was wrong. I'm sorry. Or if, if you felt harmed against someone, you did what Matthew says to do, Matthew 18. You go to them And you say, hey, this was painful. Maybe you intended it a different way, but here's the way I received that. Can we talk through it together? I think that is such a tremendous modern day example of washing feet. Whose feet did Jesus wash? He washed all 12 all 12 disciples, he washed Judas' feet. The man who he knew in just a moment would commit the ultimate betrayal. Jesus even washed them. If Jesus would wash his betrayer's feet, certainly you can wash the feet of somebody who's hurt you. Maybe in all of these ways of service, we should ask does the way I'm living demand a gospel explanation? Does the way in which I'm serving my brothers and sisters in Christ seem so out of place that if someone saw it, they would say, What in the world are you doing? I don't, under, I don't even have a category through which to understand that. Why would you do that for somebody else? That's the level of service that God calls us to. Those are just a few examples. Maybe a quick word here for us as a church at this particular moment in our history would be helpful. On May 17th, so in just a few weeks, you, church family, are going to be receiving bylaws, a proposed new set of bylaws from a team that was put together, led by a member that you voted into a new role of leadership, Scott Wakefield. At our members meeting, this group will be proposing that we adopt a new form of governance that includes elder leadership something we do not now have. What kind of men should you be looking for to serve as elders? That's a question that we're going to be asking you in the coming weeks. Who should serve in a leadership capacity, bringing God's word before you? Well, 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 give 20 qualifications. But perhaps from this one passage, we could say, you're looking for humble servant leaders. You're looking for feet washers. You're looking for people who are already known in the body to be people who go out of their way to serve and bless and care. You're looking for men like Christ. Anyone wanting the position for power or to be in charge is out. Categorically out. Anyone wanting the position in order that They would be served by others, is out. Only servants. I hope even now before you've seen this new proposal that you're praying about, the church having wisdom to adopt this form of plurality in leadership and the church having wisdom to go after, to seek out the right kinds of people. There's a lot more that could be said there, but I just want to keep that in front of us as a family. Now, on the, on the surface of this passage, we've said what the passage is about. Jesus gave us an, ex- an example that we would lovingly serve each other, caring more for others than we do for ourselves. I don't mean that, that that's simplistic because actually living that way is exceedingly difficult. But it is fairly simple. Go about your day thinking not chiefly about yourself, but about who can I bless and how can I bless them. But there's more here. There's actually a a deeper, a, a more foundational, if you will, message that this text is saying to us. Jesus is saying, I'm not just your example to follow. I'm actually the means Through which you can follow it. Jesus' foot washing, you see, ultimately pointed forward to his death on the cross. Because what we need is more than an example. If we're ever to become a foot washing people, then we need a foot washing Savior. You see, it turns out that the real shock of this passage is that what it really is telling us is the Lord of all creation is a foot-washing Savior. That's the shock. Look at verse 6. He came to Simon Peter, the guy in the room we could always count on to say what everybody else was thinking. Simon Peter and said to him, Lord, in the Greek text, the way it was originally written, the you and my are right next to each other. And they're in the point of emphasis. And they're saying, Peter's like screaming. This is, if you were texting this to someone, it would be all caps. (laughs) My, you, no. You're not washing my feet, Lord. That's the way Peter said it. And Jesus answered him, what I'm doing, you don't understand now. So Peter, I'm serving you in this demonstrative way. Even while I'm understanding, you don't get it. But afterwards, you will understand. After what? Not after the feet washing was finished. After his death. After his resurrection. Peter said to him, you will never wash my feet. But Jesus answered, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Either Peter's feet were particularly horrible or something more is being said. And certainly that's what it is. Peter doesn't have a clue that he needs a foot-washing Savior. So he arrogantly says, No, Lord, not my feet. But see, you can't have Christ as your life if you're covered with the filth of your own sin. You need him not to wash your physical feet. You need him to watch your spiritual soul. The dirt on the disciples' feet was meant to point to the vileness of the disciples' sin. Jesus was humbly serving them by washing their feet so that they would later understand his greatest act of serving them was only the means through which they could ever hope to follow his example. In other words, Jesus stretching out of his arms willingly on the cross... Serving them in his death is the only way through which sins can be washed away. It's the only way through which Peter could become clean. It's the only way through which you and I can become clean. You see, Jesus lived a perfect life so that he could die a sacrificial death and rise in victory three days later. Why? So that all who would stake their entire belief system, their trust, their hope, their confidence, their removal of guilt and shame, upon that historical fact can be given new life. Do you see, if I could coin a word, how unstereotypical that Savior is? We imagine power as might, And military greatness. And money. And Jesus says it's a basin and a pitcher. Jesus says it's a cross. God's love is pure love. It's an I love you because I love you kind of love. Jesus came, took on a towel, and washed filthy feet. But his greatest act of servanthood... Was when he was stripped naked, hung on a cross, and died. The call of God in this passage is because I've loved you, go and love others through the love that I have for you. You see, the foot washing pointed to the soul washing. But be warned service is costly. If you commit to take on a life of servanthood, you will be hurt. You will be misunderstood. You will be misrepresented. You will be taken advantage of. You will be disappointed. You will be lied to. You may even be betrayed. You will give up your life. That's what servanthood is. But in other words, to just put it simply, you'll be like Christ. And isn't that what you want? If you genuinely want to experience Christ-likeness, then it will come in the same means that it came to Christ. Not physically, of course. No one in this room is going to be nailed to a cross. But your own will... Continually being submitted up to God and God saying, do this menial thing that you don't want to do to bless, to serve, to aid, to glorify, to point to me. That's greatness. And friends, you can become that kind of person because as John says later, greater love has no one than this then someone lays down his life for his friends. Jesus laid down his life for you in order that you could have the power through him, Christ, as your life, to spend your life laying it down for others. If Christ is your life, won't you lay down your life for others? Or to put it more accurately, is Jesus still washing feet? Yes, absolutely. He's doing it through you. You see, if Christ is your life, then the command that Christ gives you is what Christ will do in you. So there are lots and lots, hundreds of feet washers in here because Christ is in you and working through you. So Christians, brothers and sisters, Jesus is your life. If he's washed away your sin, then won't you joyfully spend whatever days he gives you washing the feet of others? And non-Christians in the room, Jesus can become your life. He can wash away your sins and give you new life, a life worth living, a life of joyful service. And if you'll come to Him and if you believe the facts of the gospel that Jesus came and died and rose again and that He did that on your behalf in order that if you'll turn from your sin and put your hope in Him, then you can be given new life. You can be washed, clean, spotless. Then you too can be given a life of service, a life of joy, a life that the manufacturer says... Is the very best possible way to live. You see, we're not made for life to be about us. We're made for life to be about God. And as our lives are about God, then we will spend them joyfully on the good of others. Christian and non-Christian, I would invite you to stick around afterwards, talk with somebody sitting near you, express to them what God has said to you, seek their prayer ask questions hang around and visit with one another let me pray father thank you for your scriptures this is certainly a strange story but may we see it as less strange as we grow and mature in christ may we understand that the lord of all creation is a footwashing savior And may we, through you, Jesus, learn how to live life serving others. And I thank you that as I worked on this message this week and struggled to try and understand how to articulate it, that brother and sisters in the room kept coming to mind who are already living life this way. I praise you for that. And I pray that you would make us all foot-washing people because you've washed away our sin.